Hey, good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you today. So grab your Bibles. We are going to be finishing up our, our study that we've been at for about, I don't know, six weeks, eight weeks, something on the book of Proverbs. And as you might expect, that means we're going to look at the final chapter of Proverbs, which is what? What's the last chapter of Proverbs? Proverbs 31, okay? Now, throughout the series, we've been looking at Proverbs essentially topically, right? We've said, look, what do the Proverbs say about anger? What do the Proverbs say about sloth? What do the Proverbs say about, I don't even know, what do we do? Generosity and, and poverty and uh, I don't know what else. What else did I miss? Anger, we did anger, all, all bunch of stuff, okay? And I hope that those lessons have been helpful to kind of ponder and to think through, where do I see these things in my life? Um, and I also hope that maybe some of you have developed a new habit to read one chapter of Proverbs a day as it corresponds to the date of the month. We could, this morning, continue that process with a topical look at Proverbs with a final message drawn from Proverbs 31. And if we did that, what would our topic be, you guys? Women or, yeah, or you might say marriage or maybe like wifeiness, whatever that would be, right? Proverbs 31 is a well-known poem it's about the excellent wife, or maybe some translations might call her the noble wife. And my guess would be that many of you ladies have heard a talk on Proverbs 31. Is this a fair guess? Have you heard this before? Proverbs 31 at some, some women's conference somewhere? So we could do that, but we're not going to. Um, because I think that if we did, if I just turn this into your, your typical Proverbs 31, go be a good wife talk, then we would miss out on something really important. And not only that, but it would be probably pretty likely that I would deepen a misunderstanding about what's going on in Proverbs 31. And if there's anything in the world that I hate to do, it is to deepen misunderstandings. So in order to end well, we're gonna try to begin well. And I wanna go back with you to the very beginning of the book of Proverbs. But when we do, we're gonna kind of turn the kaleidoscope like one click and see if you don't begin to see something a little bit differently through the lens, okay? This, this may be, for some of you, kind of a sixth sense moment. Um, do you guys remember the movie Sixth Sense by M. Night Shyamalan? This is like back in the day. M. Night Shyamalan, every movie that he would make, you're, you think you're just watching a normal film, and then like in the last 10 minutes, something happens that like completely blows your mind and it reinterprets the entire story and everything's totally different. Do you remember this phenomenon? He had a whole bunch of movies. He always had the same pattern, but he always would catch me. I would never get the get the trick before he revealed it. Um, it's, it's possible to learn something at the very end that reframes the way the whole thing has gone. And that's what I want to try to do with you this morning. I want to share something with you that, I'll be honest with you, I didn't intuit this myself. I'm not making this up. This is not original with me. I would say in the current era, the, the guy that teaches this the most the clearest and the best is a, is a commentator named Tremper Longman, um, who is a brilliant Bible scholar. Um, but it's actually a, a personal friend of mine, a guy named Nick Nowak, who some of you know, who I think was the first person to kind of like point this out to me in a way that I had never seen before. It wasn't obvious, but I hope it will be clear and persuasive to you because I think this is really, I think this is really cool and it's, and it's not to be missed and it saves us from some errors that we'll get to in a minute. What I want to do as we look at Proverbs is I want to overlay the whole book with kind of a narrative grid. I want you to see the book of Proverbs as a story, not just a bunch of unconnected aphorisms, little truisms, right? Which is the way we tend to read it. Um, the book often seems disjointed. It's just kind of all these random shuffling of topics. But I think it's possible to kind of just like turn the thing a click and then look at it as a narrative and then something might, might show up in your life that you would have otherwise missed. 
Proverbs begins, it's a story about a young man uh, who is uh, getting, the whole world is before him. His life is before him, the world is before him, and he's growing up. And fortunately for him, he's not alone. He's not being raised by wolves. He's not just forced to kind of figure this out as he goes, but there is an older man in his life who loves him and who desperately wants good things for him. It's his father. And in the opening chapters of Proverbs, this father is coming to this young man and over and over and over again, he's exhorting him. He's basically saying that, son, there's, there's two paths in this world. Or, or more, more aptly, that there's really one path, but it constantly forks into two. There's a path of wisdom and a path of folly. It would be lovely if there were just two paths and you just got on the path of wisdom, set it on cruise control, and just went. But that's not the way it plays out. What you're going to find, what he's telling his son, is that over and over and over again, there's going to be a fork in the path. Choose wisdom. And then another fork in the path, choose wisdom. And another fork in the path, choose wisdom over and over again. And as, as, the, as the book begins, there's just this, you can hear this longing from this father that his son would make the right choice. Here's one of the expressions of it. He does it repeatedly, but we'll look at the one that comes in chapter two where he's like, listen, son, it is imperative that you listen to your mom and I, that, you, that the crucial step in your life is that you would obtain wisdom, that you would be on the right path. Here's how he does it in chapter two. He says, my son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, if you will call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, if you will look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, okay, if you do all these things, which is really one thing, long for wisdom, pursue wisdom, if you do that, there's going to be a payout, okay? Watch what the payout is, though, because this is where the, the record kind of skips for me. If you look for it as silver, search for it as for hidden treasure, verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. If I were that little boy listening to my father, I'd be like, wait, wait, what? What? You're saying if I do this, if I do this, if I do this, I thought you were going to say, you'll be rich. If you do this, if you do this, if you do this, you'll be successful. Or at the very least, you'll be happy. And instead he says, you'll be afraid, right? You should be like, well, wait, is that, is that what I'm looking for? It's a strange thing that he says, here's how this path begins. It begins with fear. And the crazy thing about fear is that we don't like fear because overwhelmingly the things that we fear are bad, right? We fear snakes, we fear cancer, we fear bankruptcy. And so when we come to this moment where he's like, and if you do all these things, then you'll be afraid, when you hear fear God, you might think, well, why would I fear him? Is he bad? Is he like a snake? And the answer is no, not at all. He's nothing like a snake. We don't fear God because he is bad. We fear God because we are bad. I do not fear, we do not fear God like a patient fears cancer. We fear God like cancer fears chemo. And what this father is saying to the son is if that single idea, if that will fall into place, if you will, if they will click in for you that this is his world, not my world, but that I routinely, like on the regular, violate his expectations of me, then that will put me in a position of contrition, of humility, a softness. I will find myself thirsting for grace. I will rejoice when I find it. And my heart will just be filled with gratitude. When that happens, if that happens, 
then I will have this sense of penitence before the one who justly evaluates my life. And if I do that, if I'm there in that place, that is going to be an in, just an incredible help that I might choose the right fork with every decision that comes my way. And so the father is framing this for his son. Listen, son, is that the path's going to diverge. Here's how it's going to help you to choose the right path. You must live your life in a way that you actually fear him. And so the father has this conversation for like eight chapters. It goes on and on and on. He basically keeps saying the same thing. Like, son, listen to me. You ever say the same thing to your kids more than once ever? Has that ever happened? Right? He just keeps saying, just listen, son. Get it. I want you to get it. And after about eight chapters of this, something really interesting happens. It's time for this kid, for this young man, to step out into the big bad world. At which point, these abstractions of wisdom and folly, they take on some very alluring shapes. We've spoken about this repeatedly for the last two months, but what do you think is most likely to capture a young man's attention, in particular as he is coming of age? A girl, right? What is women, right? What are we more interested in than that? And so wisdom is personified in this story as a woman. She is beautiful. And she is promising to him happiness. She stands at the crossroads of his life and says, follow me and I will give you the delight of your heart. And for this young man, it is the prize. It is the jackpot. But not so fast because there is a second woman who also appears. And she is alluring. She stands at the crossroads too. She makes the same promise, but she has a different way to get there. She says things like, stolen water is sweet, to which perhaps a young man thinks, it is? How sweet? How, how would I do this? She says, my husband is gone, and my bed is perfumed, to which this young man perhaps thinks, that is potentially very good news. And as we watch the story play out, there's this tension of what's he going to do? Which woman will he pursue? Will he go after wisdom? Will he pursue folly? What, what choice is he going to make? And there's dramatic tension here. And then something really interesting happens. The women vanish from sight. From this point on, there's no more wisdom and folly personified as wisdom. Instead, there is choice after choice after choice. And this garb that they have taken on, this feminine appearance, just kind of fades away. But be assured that wisdom and folly are still there. They're just far more subtle. They're in disguise. One of them invites him to speak harshly. Just force your way. But another speaks of the benefit of a gentle word. One shows him the benefit, the easy money, really, in taking advantage of the poor. Whereas the other one exhorts him to give to the poor. One of these voices says, just hit the snooze bar. Sleep in. It's fine. And another speaks to him of the virtue of diligence and hard work. One of them says, just say it, say it quickly. Just get it done. Let's move on. And another says, slow, slow down. Quietly consider your words. No women, just choices. But on every page, the unspoken question is, what will he choose? What's he going to do? Now, this is the point of the story where it's very easy to get lost, where it stops seeming like a story because 
it's honestly incredibly disorganized. For the next 20 chapters, it's just like, bam, 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 bam. It's not as if there's a chapter on, you know, anger and a chapter on money and a chapter, you know, it's not organized like that. It's just this hodgepodge of stuff. And as I've pondered, like, why would it be organized in a way that it's actually disorganized? And uh, what's the wisdom of a story that kind of just descends into chaos like that? And if you don't mind my saying so, I think it's disorganized like that because our lives are disorganized like that. Um, if I were to ever say to you, hey, listen up, you have a massive decision to make. On the right fork is wisdom. On the left fork is folly. What'll it be? It's a reasonably good chance that you might get it right. I'm not certain, but it's possible. But the reality is, have you ever noticed that that is not the way life works? The decisions to come at you fast. You are choosing wisdom or folly well before you even realize there was a choice to be made. When you woke up today, you did not know, you still don't know, the snap judgment that you're going to make about how you respond to your husband later today. You are not aware of the thing that you've already forgotten about that's going to bite you in the rear at 3.30. You are not actively preparing for the fight that is just going to bloom out of nowhere in your conversation with your mom later on. You simply did not get an advanced copy of the agenda. It's just coming. And your life is like the book of Proverbs. They just come rapid fire, boom, 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 boom. And it's not even as if one day is all about this topic and then the next day it's all about this topic so you get better at it. It's just, it comes as it comes. But if there was an audience to your life, if somebody was standing outside the thing watching it happen, even as we are the audience to this young man's life, they might be thinking, oh, well, what's she gonna do? They might see the fork that you aren't even quite conscious of and they watch and like, ah, oh, he blew it. I knew it. Rookie mistake. He keeps doing that, right? This could be the case if we were watching our lives. In fact, just even just think about the last seven days. Go back. Give yourself a week. Scan the week. What did you do on Monday? What was Tuesday like? Are there decisions that you can see back? I had to take the fork. I, which fork did I choose? Maybe some of the time you chose the right fork. And maybe you've already begun to experience the goodness that flows out of your life. Or maybe it's like years away. A lot of times decisions have long-term impacts. Or maybe there are things that you are just very glad there was no film camera, no film crew there to capture it. Because if we had the highlight reel of your bonehead decisions, it would just be miserable. Or maybe it's not the last decision, but the next decision. Will it be wisdom or folly? Which woman's song has been more alluring to you this week? That's the question that I think Proverbs invites us to consider. Now, back to our young man, okay, when, you, when we go through Proverbs, when we, when we read his book, when we watch the story, what the father is doing with him and how he's taking it all, there is this tension. What will he choose? To which woman is he going to unite his life? Will he choose wisdom? Will he choose folly? Does he heed his father's call to embrace Lady Wisdom? Or does the siren song of folly prove to be just, just too much? To answer that question, all we really need to do is look at the end of the story, which is Proverbs 31. Like all good stories, this one ends well, and our young man makes his choice. And this, perhaps, is where the kaleidoscope might turn for you. You guys might remember that throughout the book, he's been made all these promises, all these exhortations, all these statements, and it says in three, chapter 3 of Proverbs, whatever you do, find wisdom. For she is more precious than rubies. Whatever you do, find her. She's more precious than rubies. This poem of Proverbs 31 doesn't start at verse 1. It starts down in verse 10. So skip down there. Proverbs 31.10. Listen to this and hear the echo. 
It says, an excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. Does that sound familiar? The young man was told in Proverbs 3 to trust the Lord. And in chapter 14 and 21, he's told that all hard work, diligent planning brings gain. What we find out here in Proverbs 31, 11, is that the heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. He was promised in 11.23 that the desires of the righteous and only in good. And here in chapter 11, or chapter 31, it we're shown that the one that he has chosen does him good and not harm all the days of her life. He was told over and over again through the Proverbs that the wise are diligent and the Proverbs 31 woman is vividly diligent she works incredibly hard he was exhorted repeatedly that the wise lend to the poor and this bride that he chooses is one who opens her hands to the poor and she reaches out to the needy you guys if we could continue this every line of proverbs 31 every line is an echo of the promises made about wisdom and this is where it's going to get very strange for you women that have heard this taught a dozen times the woman of Proverbs 31 is not just any wife. She's not an idealized wife. She is not you, and you are not her. She is unquestionably Lady Wisdom. And the young man of Proverbs chose well. Proverbs is a story about a young man whose father longs for him to choose the path of wisdom. And as he comes of age, two very different women make identical promises to him. But one of them is lying. And life comes at him fast. It's dizzying as it, as it comes. The choices are stark, but it doesn't mean that the choices are easy. In fact, very often the choices are very difficult. We know, we get it. Wisdom is better than folly. And yet, folly so often seems better. And over and over and over again, he faces a choice. What's he going to do? Which fork will he take? Which woman will win his heart? But when we flip to the end of the story, we find that he has made his choice and he has chosen wisdom and he unites himself to her. And when he does, all of the incumbent blessings of wisdom flow into his life. That is the story, the narrative of Proverbs. Now the question is, is it your story? What decisions are you making? You also, by the way, have a father who loves you, who wants you to thrive, who wants you to prosper, and who comes to you and speaks to you, and he calls you and invites you to make the right decision on a regular basis. Questions like, will you prioritize worshiping with the people of God, or will you spend another weekend at the lake? Will you foster good relationships at work, with your clients, with your colleagues, such that your life is one, you're just giving yourself away to those whom you serve and those whom you serve with? Or is it all about getting all that you can and clocking out the second that the bell rings, right? Are you gonna be selfish, self-contained, or will you give yourself away? Will you teach your children through your words and your actions that the number one priority in life is sports? Or... Will you do the long, slow, plodding work to shape their loves such that they might prize and treasure Jesus? Will you, 
lay up treasure in heaven or spend it all on things that moth and rust destroy? Have you married wisdom or do you share a bed, perfumed though it be, with folly? If it's with folly, if you've chosen the wrong path, folly over wisdom, then be of good cheer because this is the one marriage that you're allowed to break. You may divorce this woman. Break it off. God invites us over and over and again, get off the wrong path, get on the right path and take the better fork that's always available. That's what's going on in Proverbs. That's what's going on in Proverbs 31. Now, let me pause. To all of you women that have heard this taught very differently 300 times and you're like, well, I don't even know what to think anymore. So let me talk to you for a second. Men, you guys, you can listen in, but I'm gonna talk to them. I know you've overwhelmingly, you've heard Proverbs 31 taught as the obligation upon you to behave in a certain way, right? Uh, And it might be, it's possible that those messages have been inspiring to you, right? It gives you something to shoot for, something that excites you. It's also possible that it has absolutely put you under a hideous pile that you hate, right? Either of these are possible. The risk of that approach to the book of Proverbs, to Proverbs 31, to all of scripture, is that when we read it moralistically, then very often one of two things happens. Besides missing the point, in this case of Proverbs or whatever passage of scripture you're reading out, is that a moralistic reading either produces an arrogant self-righteousness because we feel like we've met some standard and we congratulate ourselves on how lovely we are, or it produces this sense of despair, like, I can't do it. I didn't do it yesterday. I can't do it today. I'm sure not going to do it tomorrow. And these, these two these options of arrogant self-righteousness and crushing despair, neither of these are what the scriptures are inviting us to. So, so come here, listen to this. Here's the thing. You're not the woman of Proverbs 31. You're not, and it's okay that you're not. The, pro, the woman of Proverbs 31 is unquestioningly lady wisdom. You are not expected to be her in all of her perfections. Rather, you are exhorted to unite yourself to her and reap all of her benefits. Now, this is a little bit weird. The Bible does weird things with gender, okay? Not the same weird things with gender that our culture is doing in its present moment of complete insanity. Different weird stuff with gender, okay? Men and women together, we are the bride of Christ, okay? That's strange for the dudes. You're like, ah, oh, well, I don't, what does that even mean? I don't know that I want to be, that's weird, okay? But good news is they're not brides. You're not a bride of Christ, although you are wearing a white dress, so there is that, right? We're not brides of Christ. Men and women together are the bride of Christ. In a similar way, men and women together are the sons of God. Sometimes we'll try to like make this gender inclusive and say we are the sons and daughters of God. You don't want that, right? In the culture that the scriptures were written, um, it's the sons that get the inheritance. It's the sons that inherit everything. And so when we say that the women are included in the sonship that we have in Christ, you want to keep it just like that. You are women are partakers along with the men of all that is, all that the sons inherit. And in a similar way, men and women here in Proverbs together are exhorted, are invited not to be wisdom, but to marry wisdom and to unite our lives to wisdom. I really want you to hear this because ladies, I don't want you to, I don't want you to feel either, I don't want you to misunderstand this such that you either feel burdened or you feel excluded. I don't like either one of those. 
the main character of Proverbs is male. It's a young boy. It's the son of this father. And it's the son who's being exhorted to choose wisdom. And it would be very strange if this whole book is telling the son what to do. At the very end of it, the main character just flips. And now suddenly it's this woman who is just, she is, you know, doing, you know, she's getting everything right. She's the one who's made the choices. That's not the way the book works. That male character here um, is choosing a bride. Will he choose wisdom or will he choose folly? And by the time we get to chapter 31, we know the answer to the question is he chooses well. He chooses the bride that is wisdom. But that male character throughout the book, she stands in, he stands in rather, for men and for women, right? Ladies, you are included in this son who is getting ready to choose a bride. It is men and women together as we walk through this world with rapid choices together, all of humanity, male and female, we are making the choices of to whom will we unify, with whom will we unify ourselves? Where Where are we going? Male or female, the imperative of our lives is to choose wisdom because the beginning hear this, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. What that means is that as we choose wisdom, we are choosing him. And if we reject him, we are also rejecting wisdom. Now, if the male-female thing is not complicated enough, here's what's crazy. The Proverbs consistently uh, pictures wisdom as a woman and folly as as a woman. When wisdom actually came to the earth, and actually became a human being, it was a man. It was Jesus. And so the, so the metaphor does kind of flip at that point. And when we unite ourselves to wisdom, we are uniting ourselves to him. He has become for us wisdom from God. He is our righteousness and our holiness and our redemption. And the great hope, the great need of our lives is that he would draw us to himself that we'd be united to him and that we would reap all the benefits and all the blessings that come from being married to, as it were, the one who is wisdom. So be of good cheer. Whatever pressure you felt to be this person, you can't. That's not the plan. You're not to, we are not to be a self-righteous people. We are a people who have an imputed, gifted, granted righteousness. His wisdom becomes our wisdom as we unite ourselves to him. Dig it. Got it? All right, let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We lift you up. We exalt you. We sing songs to you. We bend our lives around you because you are everything good. Lord, I pray for these men and women. Lord, would you make us to be a people that are wise? Would you unite our lives to wisdom? Would you help us to make the right choice to choose the fork that begins by fearing you and ends with all joy and all delight? Would you let us be soft in your hands to see your greatness and your majesty and your power and to delight in all that you give to us. We love you. Amen.